is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we bring you stories about, well, just about everything, from the arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we bring you our Women of True Grit series. Our friend Edie Hand has come across many women whose stories of hardship, character, and perseverance caused her to write a book called Women of True Grit. Now Edie is bringing some of those women along with many others to our airwaves. Today, Edie brings us the story of Mary Sparks, a tale of faith and family as told by her son Sparky. Here's Edie. Mary Sparks exhibited strength of conviction throughout her life. But oddly enough, it all started with an affair, a stolen baby, and her Catholic faith. Here's her son Sparky to recount his mother's tale. I guess the time to start this story is in 1943. My mother fell in love with a married man who was about to ship off to the war. Mary couldn't bear the idea of losing her love, so she attempted to join the Women's Army Corps, a WAX for short. And when she joined the WAX, she took her physical and found out she was pregnant. My grandfather, great Polish gentleman, he shipped her to Chicago to a home for unwed mothers where she worked like a dog for several months and then had my sister. My sister who always made fun of me growing up and told me I was adopted. My grandmother took the train from Terre Haute, Indiana to Chicago to pick up my mother who had just had this child. And my mother had been very weak and very Really, I, I think she, they, were, they abused her from the standpoint of making her cook and clean for other people in this home. So my mother and grandmother had put my sister up for adoption. And the people were supposed to be there that afternoon to pick up my sister. But on the way to the train station, neither could shake the feeling that something just wasn't right. And my mother said, I can't give up this baby. I just can't do it. And my grandmother said, well, your father is not gonna let us come home with a baby. We have to give up this child. And my mother said, do you wanna give up the child? And my grandmother said, no, I don't want to. And my grandmother, who didn't speak English very well, Polish was her first language, told the cab driver to turn around when they got to the train station. And they went back to this home, walked in the door. The people who were adopting my sister were there to pick her up. And my mother just went in, grabbed my sister, and she and my grandmother ran down the steps, back into the cab, and fired off toward the train station. My grandmother, as they were running out, grabbed all the paperwork she could get a hold of with both hands and held it into her. And then they sorted it out on the train and, and destroyed it. 
But then they had Sparky's grandfather, Mary's father, to deal with. But that wouldn't be much of a problem. So then they got home to Terre Haute. My grandmama just told him he was just going to have to get used to it. A year or two later, a World War II prisoner of war returned home to Indiana and began courting Mary. But she felt like she had to hide her child out of shame. There's several stories of her hiding my sister from him when he would come pick her up for a date. My, my grandmother and grandfather ran a uh, boarding house. And while that provided useful cover for a while, it only had to fail once for the gig to be up. After they got serious and they started dating, my dad came in one day unannounced and there was my sister in a playpen. And my dad said, who is this baby? And my mother started crying and said, this is my child. And my dad said, well, who's the father? And my mother said, he has gone away. My dad looked down at her and said, well, this child needs a father. So I guess we need to get married, Mary. And that's how he proposed to mom. My sister found out all of this because this was a big secret in our family. We didn't know this story until my sister, when she was about 22, tried to get a passport. And she said, I was born in Terre Haute, Indiana. And they told her, called her back the next day and said, Miss Bauer, you were born in Chicago. What? You were born at a uh, home for unwed mothers. And my, my sister, who had tormented me all my life, telling me I was adopted. Uh, we, you know, and then we started finding out all this story. I always thought that my sister was treated a little bit differently than the other kids. And both, all the brothers and sisters on the Sparks side of the family, 11 of them, and all the brothers and sisters on the Cummins, which is, they had Americanized from Kaminsky uh, side of the family, uh, kept this a secret from all us kids. Growing up, nobody knew. And nobody needed to know. His parents didn't want any undue attention. And more than that, his father wanted his sister Sharon to have a loving home, full of love, conviction, and grief. And more of this remarkable story, an amazing love story. Our Women of True Grit series continues, Mary Sparks' story, after these messages. And we're back with Our American Stories and our Women of True Grit series and Mary Sparks' story. 
Her boyfriend, when he found out that her daughter, born out of wedlock, didn't have a father, proposed on the spot and raised the daughter as his own. Now we bring you the rest of Mary's story of faith and family, told again by her son, Sparky. Here's Edie. The Sparks family had no shortage of children, seven to be exact. And as good Catholics, you'd expect that. Mary and Jesse did their best to raise their kids well, with faith and family at the heart of all they did. But in 1973, that all would be put to the test. I was a student at uh, the University of Alabama. It was on a, uh, a Thursday morning in the spring. I get a call from my mother and my mother said, I need you home. And I said, well, okay. Uh, spring break is in a couple of months and I'm planning on coming home to the farm. And she said, no, I need you home today. I said, what's going on? Is dad okay? Your father's fine. And uh, I need you home. And I said, Mama, I've got a test tomorrow, Friday. I said, I've got a test. She said, tell your professor that you've got a family emergency and you need to come home. I need you to be with me for a few days. Are you sick? No. And Dad's okay? Yeah. What's the, what will I tell him the emergency is? I'm sure if you just tell him there's a family emergency, He'll let you take your test next week. I had the toughest professor on just about on campus teaching music history, Dr. Nicolosi. I, I knew I was dead that afternoon, went to see him, and I said, I have a family emergency. I'll be glad to take the test right now, but my mother has asked for me to be home in Indiana and I've got to leave. And he said, you just take the test next week and don't worry about it. If this is for your mother and it's a family emergency, then you need to go. I was sure that that man did not have a heart up until that point. <laughs> but I became convinced that maybe he was okay. Got in my car, drove through the night. You know, I was in shock. The whole thing, when I got in the car, I mean, I was so relieved when I got there to see all my brothers were okay because I knew something had happened to somebody and she just wasn't telling me. I mean, I was pretty sure I was coming up there for a funeral of some kind. What a relief it was to find out that wasn't the case. And yet there was still that burning question that even Sparky's siblings were asking. Why are you home? I said, I don't know. Mama wants me home, what's going on? She said, well, Daddy, the last two nights, Daddy slept in the barn. What is going on? We don't know. So we had this big breakfast. My mother had this huge plate of bacon and eggs and ham, and she said, here, take this out to the barn for your father. And I said, why is he sleeping out in the barn? Are you two getting divorced? She said, we're Catholic, 
we don't get divorced. Take this out to your father. I said, okay, I'm headed out to the barn. Hey, Daddy, he said, I thought you might be coming home. I said, what's going on? He said, I'm sure your mother will tell you when she's ready for you to know. Little did Sparky know that he wasn't just going to find out what was going on, but also the depths of his mother's convictions and the lengths that she would go to in order to follow through with them. So after breakfast and clean up, everybody's out doing their chores and mother said, come with me, we've got to go somewhere. We got in the car. I said, please tell me what's going on. She said, your father's had an affair with this young lady and he's gotten her pregnant. I need to talk her into giving us this baby so I can raise it right. So get in the car, let's go. She said, I just don't want you to say anything. So we drove to this lady's house, young lady, it was a small town, I knew her. And uh, we got to her house, her apartment, and she answered the door, she said, what do you want? My mother said, I'm Mary Sparks. You've been having an affair with my husband. I understand you're pregnant. She said, yes, I am. And I want to talk to you, please. May we come in? She said, this is my son, Sparky. She said, I know him. I said, well, we went in, we sat down. And she said, so here's the deal. She said, I will pay for all your expenses. She said, I'll give you $3,000 today. When the child is born, I'll give you $5,000. When the child is born and you sign the paper for us to adopt him. She said, how do you know it's gonna be a boy? And she said, we're Sparks's, that's all we have. She said, I'll raise him right. If you ever wanna be in his life, you can be. And she said, I know you probably don't feel too good about what you've done, but I'm not worried about that. She said, that's for God to decide, judge, not me. She said, will you pay my rent? She said, yes, I'll pay all your expenses. I'll pay your hospital bills, I'll pay everything. And when the child is born and we adopt, and I know you're okay, then it ends, and we will take the child to raise, and I'll raise it as my, my own child. She said, all right. She said, have you got the money now? She said, of course, I got it right here in my purse. And I said, I've got the paperwork. We signed it. We went by the attorney's office, had him notarize it. That's the way my brother Jake came into the world. He knew he was adopted from day one. All my brothers did, but we also knew that we would treat him just like any other brother, and we did. Once again, the Sparks family, in the face of infidelity, was given a gift, and due to their faith, took a child in and accepted it without question as their own. Years later, I went to play golf with my dad. I said, I gotta ask you, did you and mom resume relations 
with each other? He said, of course. He said, it took two or three months, but your mother was tough as nails. But she always said that God would judge me. It wasn't her place to judge me. And we were married. I was her husband. She was my wife. That's just the way it was. There was a moment in time that I forgave your mother and years later she forgave me. And thanks to Edie Han for the work there and thanks for Sparky. What a remarkable story and Mary Sparks, what a remarkable woman and great job on the production, Robbie. Just a beautiful job. And by the way, our lives are all messy, but if this is any testimony to what a, a true Christian walk looks like, this is it. And it's forgiveness, folks. And it's hard to do, but it's what obedient people of faith do. And my goodness, in other families, this would have been a divorce and a mess, and who knows what would have happened to that child. And in this family, the child is loved. I'll raise him right, Mary Sparks said to this poor young girl. And by the way, this is a different day. This is a different day. And to do this kind of thing, and to not worry about the social opprobrium, what people were gossiping about or talking about, really, what a, what a remarkable story. And again, share your stories with us, family stories, faith stories, any old kind of story that has this kind of grit and love. It's real, folks, and we only tell real-life stories here. No, no daisies and no rainbows. Life's tough. But how you deal with these circumstances, we can learn from stories like these. And the relationship got healed. The wife forgave. He forgave himself, too, because in the end, the guy's got to forgive himself. And of course, their God, well, forgave both of them. Mary Sparks' story, our Women of True Grit series, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for another installment in our series, Energy is Life, where we explore the role of energy in all of our lives. We use it almost every minute of every day, from heating and cooling our houses to cooking and powering all of our devices and transportation. Here's our own Alex Cortez, who brings us today's episode. Chris Wright is an energy leader, but that's not how his life started. There's four kids in the family. I'm the youngest of four, but we're less than four years apart. So we were all in high school together, all in college together. We all had kids at the same time. So, you know, my parents have nine grandchildren less than five years apart in age. So we all grew up together, and now our kids are all growing up together. But yeah, my mom jokes when she brought me home, you know, she had at home a one, two, and three-year-old. Well, my parents, I would say, obviously not too sophisticated on birth control, and so imagine trying to handle that. My God, I was overwhelmed with our two kids. 
She had to keep me in a pen because, you know, my brother, you know, who was two and a half, he loved to play with steel trucks and I'm a fragile infant. So I'd say, well, my first miracle was surviving infanthood. It was great that we were together. You know, we were all different. All four of us had different interests and all that, but we've always been close. You know, we grew up, we had the typical sibling rivalries or battles or two against two or three against one. Those are worse. But for the most part, we got along well. We grew up well. I'd say probably the biggest stress or impact we had as kids growing up is my dad was an alcoholic before I was born and to this day. Um, now, functioning alcoholic. Went to work every day, did a great job at work, you know, was you know, reasonably successful, uh, you know, middle class. We moved to good school districts, so it was no wild, uh, you know, family stress story. But that's a totally different environment. My, my mom, absolutely the other extreme, just an absolute saint. And I think she thought, you know, I got to raise my kids to have the best opportunities they can going forward in a somewhat challenged environment. You know, dad did not give the interest and consistent love and affection and support that's so critical for upbringing. But my mom gave it in just copious quantities. So all of us were impacted by the dynamics of my father differently. You know, and some good and some bad. I'm probably lucky. I probably got more good out of it than bad because I got out of it two huge things. One is I want to be independent. You know, the only guy who makes money in our household, you know, has his good days and his bad days. And, you know, hey, if I wanted to play tennis, he liked to play tennis. You know, as a young kid, I could get a tennis racket. I wanted to ride a skateboard. You know, he hated skateboards. I'm not going to get a skateboard. You know, so it drove me at a very young age. At nine, I started a weed picking business. By 10, I was babysitting, picking weeds wider. I think I had to be 11 before I was mowing lawns and babysitting. So I worked a lot as a kid, which was really awesome because to me, it was this freedom. It was this independence. I made that money, I can buy whatever I want with it, you know. I bought a skateboard, I, I did never let it get in my way. And I also had, and, and the, the single biggest thing, so that's one thing, it drove this desire to be independent, to control my own destiny at a very young age. Maybe the even bigger factor was my mom. My mom was just unbelievable, you know, to have someone who just unconditionally loved and support you, you know, from your first aware moment, well, and obviously before aware moments, to this day. So she was just a tremendously powerful impact on me. I think that love of a mother when you're young, it gives people security and a sense of a value and a place in the world that just lasts a lifelong. In Liz and I's work, you know, with people that are born in rough circumstances and are raised by their grandmothers and their parents are in jail and all that, they're like us, they're just like you and I, but, but they don't have that I'm fundamentally value, I'm worth it. They don't have that optimism and spirit that comes from that young love and support. So incredibly lucky I got that in abundance. And I think that confidence and the belief that I was important and that what I did was important, just, it was, it was very meaningful in allowing me to go do the things I wanted to do. I say my, my short professional career is a science geek turned tech nerd turned energy entrepreneur. That's my whole career. But at the time when I was a kid, so think at high school in the late 70s and the early 80s, the mania then was we were running out of everything. 
not just running out of oil and gas, but metals and farmland and, you know, we're sort of the end of modern civilization meme, this depletionist thing. Paul Ehrlich, John Holdren, A. Bartlett, you know, and so then I heard this as a kid, oh my God, you know, we don't know if it's 10 years or 20 years, we're going to run out of oil and natural gas is 15 or 20 years, but even phosphate fertilizers and farmland, just, there was just no way that the great trajectory of the world that I'm seeing as a kid is going to continue. You know, we don't know if it's, you know, rolling over in 10 years or 20 years, but when you're 14 years old, those are both pretty soon. And that allowed me to think, think, well, you know, I'm an optimist, you know, I'm going to fight to address that problem. And so I wanted to work on energy because that was the most dramatic one, right? My brother and I liked the outdoors and adventure. We wanted to, our dream was to climb mountains around the world. Well, how are we going to travel around the world and climb mountains? You know, if we, we don't have any oil in the plains and modern civilization is going to collapse. And the other big formative thing when I was a kid was my dad took me down to his office once and walking from where we parked like two blocks to his office, literally the block outside where my office is right now, I saw a homeless person on the street. I was about 12 years old. I lived in a nice suburban neighborhood. I'm an optimist. I love this country and land of opportunity and everybody around the neighborhood's doing just fine. And I see someone on the street without a roof over his head and without enough food to eat. I know nothing about mental illness or substance abuse. All that's over my head. I'm just, I'm, I, frankly, I was sad and then immediately mad that we had people in our, in our United States, in my city, that didn't have a roof over their head and, and, and enough food to eat. And that sent a mission in my life that why was I so damn lucky, you know, to you know, go to great schools, get loved. I've had this dreamy life, but so many people grew up in a different set of circumstances and they don't have the opportunities I have. So I set out to like, I wanna, I wanna impact that problem. I wanna go to MIT, right? Cause I'm a tech guy. That's the best technical school in the world. They have these two things called tokamaks, which think they're badass donuts or bagels with, with these giant magnets on them, right? Confine a plasma to liberate energy. It's what powers the sun and all the stars. So fusion energy is the ultimate Shangri-La of energy. Gigantic, limitless, the, fu- the fuel you put in is water, you know, but you have to create circumstances that somewhat mimic the center of the sun, right? Well, we don't have a, a body nearly that large to get those gravitational forces. So you have to have some other way to contain stuff in a tight environment and then raise the temperature to 100 million degrees. You know, any, any container would melt, right? So how do you do that? It's a tough problem, but if we solve it, it's gigantic energy. So I wanted to go to MIT, study plasma physics, and crack the fusion energy problem. My dad, of course, is, he went to the University of Colorado. Why would anyone go to college outside of Colorado? You don't, you know, you don't need to go to college outside of Colorado. And my mom said, if you want to do it, it's going to happen. And she just gave me that, if you want to do it, it's going to happen. So I did. I, you know, I, w- I, I went for it. I visited MIT and Harvard. I loved MIT, and I decided this is where I want to go to college. And it's the only place I applied. And I got in and I was thrilled. And, and really, because the intervention of my mom and maybe my determination that no matter what I was going, I got to go. And you're listening to Chris Wright telling his story. And it's, of course, not just an energy story. It's a human story, a curiosity, a drive, and the experience of having an alcoholic dad and what it can do to different kids. And for him, it just well, it compelled him to want to be as independent as soon as possible because he wanted to make his own decisions. And so at the earliest time, he was starting his own little ventures and his own little 
ideas about how to get to that point called independence. And then that choice to go to MIT. And my goodness, that's no, that's no cakewalk. And that his mom just supported it 100%. And it wasn't cheap. And my goodness, he knew it wasn't going to be easy. Simply thinking about what he was about to study makes my brain hurt. When we come back, more of Chris Wright's story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American Stories in our Energy is Life series. When we last left off, Chris was going to MIT because his mom believed in him and his wrestling with this problem of poverty in a wealthy society. Let's return to Chris. When I was very young as a kid, I'm like, God, there's so many more people that, you know, doing fine than this guy I saw on the street. And I know there's more of them, but there's so much less. A small shift of resources from here to there, just to end this problem. My question then was, what causes poverty and how do we fix it? And I didn't learn till I was 17 or 18 and I was traveling in the ghettos in the eastern, in the United States, and then ultimately traveling overseas in third world countries. And I realized that's the wrong question. The right question is, what lifts people out of poverty, not what causes poverty? Humans have been poor throughout all of human history, everywhere and always. The anomaly is the last couple hundred years where now the majority of people don't live in dire poverty. If 200 years ago, 90% of the human population lived on less than $2 a day in today's terms. Imagine that, 90% of the human population, all of human history up to 200 years ago, and then we had this, this creation of the modern world. To me, two things drove that. The growth of human liberty. That's why the businesses today are all called liberty. You know, we had all top-down organization. The chief, the king, the queen, the emperor. You know, people were subjects of a ruler and they had a, a small box they were constrained to live in. When people got this ability to escape from that box, the glorious revolution in England where the king was no longer the ultimate sovereign. Uh, he had to, the Congress or the, the parliament made the laws and raised taxes and the king couldn't do those without that. That's the first chip away at full top down. Of course, it's centuries later before we get any semblance of democracy. Democracy is just voting landed people. But you know, can you believe 120 years ago, nowhere on earth could a woman vote? That's, that's outrageous. And 200 years ago, before the rise of hydrocarbons and, and the growth of this human liberty movement, slavery is prevalent in all major society around the world. I don't think it's a coincidence that we have these rumblings of political liberty, economic liberty, and the arrival of fossil fuels. What happens very quickly after? Slavery goes from prevalent around the world to within 50 years, rare around the world. Not gone, but rare around the world. Within 60 or 70 years, women get the right to vote for the first time. In the very early 1900s, by, by the mid-1900s, women vote almost everywhere. So I think 
the energy that enabled people's freedom and this movement for human liberty just transformed every aspect of the world, not just economic well-being. Even after the founding of the United States, our Constitution was still our, our big flaw, which is the existence of slavery. We don't get real economic freedom. You still needed a vote of a state government to grant you a corporate charter. To start a business, you and I want to start a business, we need a vote from the government to do that. That's, that's cronyism, right? There's already a business making horse buggies here. Why would we grant you a charter? You know, this guy's wealthy and he's powerful and he's supporting us politicians. You had a status quo. But, you know, there was a financial crisis in the United States in 1839. A number of states couldn't service their debt anymore. They rewrote their constitutions. And by a quirk of history, they wrote in general incorporation laws. It was a way to raise money. As long as you, you two guys get together and want to start a business, if you pay your fee and register your papers, you can have a business. Now we get another entity that can tax if it generates profits. And all of a sudden, we had bottom-up economic power. Those two things, liberty and fossil fuels, created the modern world. So I didn't know that when I was young. When I, I was told, okay, that was great, but you know, fossil fuels are about to end. Go to college, work on fusion energy. And then I worked in uh, solar. I didn't mention, I worked in geothermal for two or three years after graduate school. Hot, dry rock, trying to mine the heat underground by circulating water. So there's so many cool energy technologies, but I never would have guessed that by far the most impactful energy innovation you know, of my lifetime was going to be in oil and gas. And by, by crazy luck that I'd be, I'd, I'd be involved, maybe even somewhat at the center of it. Chris's earlier company, Pinnacle Technologies, helped launch what's called the Shale Revolution, where they access the shale rock, the hard-to-open rock that's the original source of oil and gas, by shooting a mixture of water, sand, and chemicals to break it open. And this approach, called fracking, has helped drive oil and gas production up by 57% over the last decade enabling America to achieve energy independence and become a net exporter of petroleum for the first time since 1949. You know, I had a small team of folks and we built a super exciting business that also very much in a blind squirrel finds nut story, we ended up coming up with a couple ideas that helped start the shale revolution. You know, there were different ways to do hydraulic fracturing and different understandings of how hydraulic fractures are growing underground that combined with the, uh, with the drive and willing to take risks at Mitchell Energy. The real hero of the American Shale Revolution is George Mitchell and the team that worked for him. Their determination, maybe a little bit of luck and a couple ideas from us, just led to something that I had no idea at the time how dramatic it would impact world energy this sort of resetting of oil and natural gas prices lower across the planet. You know, if you look at the last five years of oil and gas prices versus the previous five years before the shale revolution had disrupted global energy prices, it's over a trillion dollars a year savings to consumers of the world. You know, now my energy passion is merging with my, how do I get other people not born like me to have lucky and opportunity in life? These two things really come together in cheaper energy prices as enablers for people that are born in different circumstances, whether it's the wrong country, the wrong zip code in our country. 
frankly, are born in the wrong century. Every, every, I could have been born from the exact same parents. If I was born 200 years ago, I'd have been dirt poor. I wouldn't have traveled the world. I wouldn't have done all the things I've done. In fact, in my case, I never would have celebrated my 14th birthday. I became a type 1 diabetic, learned this soon after I turned 13. If I had been born 100 years before then, even 70 years before then, that was just a death sentence. Your, your pancreas doesn't work anymore, you can't produce insulin, you can't metabolize food, you die. You, you might die in two weeks, you might survive 10 months and wither away miserably. You know, maybe, maybe you live a year, but it was death sentence throughout all of human history. But because of the rise of the modern world, the growth of human liberty and fossil fuels in the, in the right around 1920, couple of hard-driving, enterprising Canadians figure out what it is that type 1 diabetes is that kills you. You know, you're missing insulin and you can't produce it anymore. How do we, how do we get it from elsewhere? You know, originally from the pancreas of pigs or now it's just, you know, synthesized by D DNA replication. But ah, something that was a death sentence two generations before me was Oh, it's a big, big inconvenience and all that, but it didn't stop me from doing anything and it isn't going to shorten or change my lifespan. There's so many things in the modern world that we just take for granted that just weren't so not long ago. So why did the rise of modern energy matter for insulin or, or any modern medical technologies? Uh, Hippocrates is like famous, you know, medic, doctor from who said that do, first do no harm, you know, way back in classical Greece. And then Galen was a Roman doctor who wrote extensively on medicine. These are brilliant guys who looked and observed and wrote and thought. But with the technology available t to them, medicine really didn't do a lot. They didn't have the tools to actually fix problems, actually diagnose things, because we didn't have science, we didn't have antiseptics, we didn't have materials, plastics, and all that we use. But really, the creation of the modern world, I think starting, you know, just arbitrarily called the year 1800 or something, all of a sudden we're getting wealthier, we're getting more acquisitive. Just think of transportation. People could go to conferences and present papers and debate and discuss. People were wealthy enough that a large chunk of the population wasn't growing food or trying to survive. They were actually doing research in universities. They were testing things, surgical instruments, the plastics and stuff we make. It's all plastic and metals. You know, without intense energy, you can't mine metals and make specific alloys, you know, that are useful for medical. So it's research, it's wealth, it's time, all of these things that people thought about these things 2,000 years ago, but only middle of the 1800s, late 1800s, and the early 1900s does everything happen in medical technology. What about penicillin until you know, World War II? All of these developments happen rapidly after this growth of human liberty, increase in wealth, and availability of energy. And availability of energy means an availability of materials to synthesize and create the materials you need for the application you're looking at. So there simply was no possibility of modern medicine without the growth of human liberty and low-cost abundant energy. But with human liberty and low-cost abundant energy, there's no way we're not going to have, we're, we're not going to invent modern medicine and the internet and telecommunications and transistors. All of these things logically follow. And great job to Alex and to Monty for producing that piece. And Chris, by the way, his company, Liberty Oil Field Services, employs over 2,000 Americans. And what great points he was making about life in general.
that it's not just what country you were born in or what zip code, but when you were born. I mean, imagine life in the 18th century when almost everybody was poor and spent most of their day just trying to gather food and how we live today and what free enterprise and what low-priced and low-cost energy does, that we've saved $1 trillion from these discoveries in oil and natural gas. Boy, it helps the middle class and the poor the most. Lower oil and natural gas prices. The story of Chris Wright, a part of our Energy is Life series, here on Our American Story. Habib with Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They are some of our favorites. And now it's time for another powerful story from our friend Jay Moore. Jay is a retired history teacher from Abilene, Texas, who's known for hosting presentations about his city's history to over 900 fellow citizens that show up for them. And by the way, I believe every town's got a resident storyteller. And if you know that person, if you have a Jay Moore in your town, send him our way. Again, send him to ouramericannetwork.org. And today, Jay brings us the story of two American heroes from West Texas. Take it away, Jay. Every town has its unique vocabulary, a local lexicon. Those words and phrases which are understood in that place, but often don't carry much meaning past the city limits. And in my West Texas hometown, if someone says dais, well, you know what they mean. That's dais spelled with a capital D, D D-Y-E-S-S. Everyone knows that you're referring to the big Air Force base that calls Abilene, Texas home. And Abilenians are proud of the base. When we hear dais, It evokes a mental picture of those planes and the missions and of those young men and women who wear Air Force dress blues and battle camouflage and who are serving out there. For the vast majority of folks, hearing the word dais does not conjure up an image of anything or anyone else. I think it should. Hearing dais should bring to mind a dark-haired, Hollywood handsome young man who was from the small nearby town of Albany, Texas, and who lived and breathed. Ed Dias would endure unimaginable suffering, and he would live with great compassion. He was a young man, steeled with determination and selflessness, and it would be those very traits that cost him his life. Dias Air Force Base nearly bore a different name. In fact, when the months-old Abilene Air Force Base was renamed by the military in 1956, There were scores of suggestions for whom to honor, including Davy Crockett and even Daniel Boone. But one very near possibility was to name it Grimes Air Force Base. Grimes was Rudyard Grimes, and like Dias, he too was a local boy. He was born in Abilene and stayed here until leaving for college. Grimes and Dias were contemporaries, born months apart during World War I. Both of them were young men in their 20s during World War II and both served with valor in the Philippines. Both would be captured and both forced to endure the Bataan Death March. 
two West Texas boys who both suffered a hell half a world from home. One of them would survive, and one of them would not. One set of parents would receive a telegram causing them to collapse into joyous relief and then to rise up and dance in their living room, while two more parents would crumple into an unimaginable, sorrow-filled pain and would be forever racked with questions for which there were very few good answers. The father of Rudyard Grimes was long and lean, and many thought that Frank Grimes looked a bit like Ichabod Crane. And even today, the shadow of Frank Grimes in Abilene remains bright and wide, although it's been nearly 60 years since he passed away. For more than 40 years, Frank Grimes was the editor of our newspaper, the Abilene Reporter News. And his ability to speak through the written word caused many people to feel a personal connection to a man that they never actually met. His life was filled with contrasts. Frank Grimes was scholarly and highly educated, but it was a self-education as he dropped out of school in the eighth grade. He was a voracious reader, and if he wasn't at home or at work, he could usually be found at the city library. And although he was quiet in public, his written words were a daily part of life for tens of thousands living in West Texas. Frank had arrived in Abilene in 1914 when he was just 23 and he joined a staff of just two news writers. Within a few years, he was named the editor in charge, and as such, he turned out an astonishing amount of work. He had a real knack for clearing out the clutter and the underbrush of complex issues. He presented clear and concise and even whimsical opinions on subjects that ranged from war and politics to the weatherman's forecast and pumpkin pies, which he detested. Grimes was just a small town editor who daily wrote up to six editorials, and he did so for four decades. He would twice be in the final round for a Pulitzer Prize. Frank was a poet as well, but he held those writings much closer to the vest. In September of 1917, Frank included a short piece in the paper announcing that he and Mrs. Grimes had welcomed a 10-pound baby boy. As a lover of poetry, Frank suggested to his wife that maybe they could name the baby for his most esteemed literary idol, which was Rudyard Kipling. Mrs. Grimes agreed, so Rudyard Kipling Grimes came to live in Abilene, and he would always be referred to as Rudyard. They never shortened it to Rudy. In noting his son's birth, the new dad quoted himself with a wink, writing, he's the finest boy in Abilene. Just months before, in 1916, the newspaper had carried the announcement of another baby boy, a boy born to Richard and Hallie Dias, 40 miles north in Albany. They named their son William Edwin. As a boy, everyone called him Eddie, and later, as a young man, it was shortened to just Ed. By the mid-1930s, Rudyard Grimes had grown to six feet, and he was studying at Abilene High School, where he loved physics, and he played in the band. Following graduation, he headed off to Texas A&M, but his plans changed following his freshman year when he received an appointment to attend the academy at West Point. Meanwhile, one county away, Ed Dias, who also was six feet, spent most days working after school at a gas station. But he also began to slip away to take a few flying lessons from the barnstorming pilots who had dropped in on Albany. When he graduated, he headed to nearby Stephenville and John Tarleton College. And like Grimes, he soon received an appointment 
His to the west point of the air, to Kelly Field in San Antonio. Rudyard Grimes and Ed Dias would share remarkably parallel lives. West Texas boys who wanted to serve their country and who married within months of one another, who both sailed to the Philippines for their first military assignments. And you're listening to Jay Moore telling the tale of two West Texas boys affected by World War II, Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes. Their stories continue, and Jay Moore continues here on Our American Stories. back with Our American Stories and the story of Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes. We left off with the two young men sailing to the Philippines for their first military assignments during World War II. Let's return to Jay Moore for more of their stories. Ed Dias bid his parents goodbye in 1940, while Rudyard left home a few months earlier. Frank Grimes saw his finest Abilene boy off at the Abilene train station where they stoically shook hands and Frank wished his son a bon voyage. Dias and Grimes crossed the Pacific and each came to a place where they would rise to their formidable occasions and where both would present their dauntless courage and a selfless enterprise. It seems often overlooked that on December 7, 1941, Japan not only attacked at Pearl Harbor, but they also launched an attack on the American-controlled Philippine Islands. U.S. and Filipino forces would battle the Japanese invasion for four long months. Dias and Grimes would be very much in the thick of it. With American forces being cut off and overrun, General MacArthur moved his troops to the Bataan Peninsula, there on the main island of Luzon. It was an attempt to hold out until a relief force could arrive from the United States. A month after Pearl Harbor, on January 7th, the Japanese forces began a siege of the peninsula. Five days later, on January 12th, 1942, Rudyard Grimes organized 50 soldiers and led them in a boldly audacious attack across a field of rice paddies against dug-in Japanese positions. It was a move that seemed suicidal because the area was being swept by machine gun and mortar fire. But Grimes placed himself at the head of the group, and in an effort so heroic that it would later earn him the nation's second highest medal for military valor, the Distinguished Service Cross, Grimes succeeded in routing the enemy and restoring the main line of resistance. Due to a shortage of planes during the Philippine fight, Ed Dias was temporarily transferred to the infantry. There he volunteered to lead 20 men in a surprising amphibious landing assault on the west coast of Bataan to eliminate Japanese troops. It would be the first amphibious U.S. assault of World War II. A month later, he was back in his battle-scarred P-40 Warhawk that he had nicknamed Kibosh. It was a plane he had already used to down six Japanese aircraft. He resourcefully improvised an action that would earn him the Distinguished Service Cross as well. Using some West Texas know-how, 
he turned his P-40 fighter into an improvised bomber by strapping bombs beneath the wings and jerry-rigging a release. He then flew to Subic Bay and he managed to destroy an enormous supply dump and he squarely hit a 12,000 ton Japanese transport. Flying two more sorties, he damaged launches, barges, and forced a 6,000 ton vessel to run aground. Later, the Japanese Navy claimed that they had been attacked by three waves of bombers. In fact, it was just a few fighter planes and a good-looking kid from Albany, Texas. While the fight for Bataan raged, a radiogram arrived in Abilene from Grimes. The 24-year-old wrote to his parents, Don't worry, I'm all right. The letter is on the way. I'm a captain now. On March 11th, MacArthur was taken out of harm's way and removed to Australia. The Japanese launched their all-out assault on Bataan on April the 2nd. That same day, Mr. and Mrs. Dias received a cablegram from their son, and it read, I'm doing fine. Save me a big Hereford steak. They would not hear from their son again for over a year. On April 9th, as a commanding officer, Dias was to be evacuated, but he refused to abandon the 200 men of his squadron who were going to be left behind, and instead he gave his plane to another pilot for a last bombing run and a flight to safety. Later that day, the Bataan Peninsula fell to the Japanese in what would be the largest surrender of U.S. forces in American history. Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes and thousands of others were now prisoners of the Japanese Imperial Army. They were captured north of Marivellis, and the next morning, they and some 70,000 other captives were forced to march. They would walk more than 60 miles north to prison camps in a miserably unforgiving heat. Hundreds of them would die along the way, and some were killed just for failing to keep up. The infamous trek has become synonymous with savagery, but also with American and Filipino determination. The Bataan Death March would later be judged as a war crime. Somehow, Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes survived that brutal odyssey. And although Americans back home learned of the surrender, it would be nearly two years before the public learned of the merciless march. Shortly after the surrender, it was announced in Washington that nothing could be done for the American fighting men captured on Bataan. But in Albany, Richard Dias and his fellow townsmen refused to take that news sitting down. And Mr. Dias suggested to a group of Albany men, you know, there's one sure way we can go in there and get Ed. If we can get a submarine close by, maybe he can get to it. Dice even wrote to MacArthur with that suggestion, and the general replied, but noted that there were many difficulties. Two weeks before Christmas of 1942, nine months after being captured, telegrams arrived in West Texas just two days apart. The first came to Frank Grimes on December 12th, and 48 hours later, a second was delivered to the Dice home in Albany. And both telegrams read the same. Both confirmed what each family suspected. Your son, Captain Rudyard K. Grimes. Your son, Major Edwin Dias, is a prisoner of war of the Japanese government on the Philippine Islands. Frank Grimes wrote in his editorial the next day, Knowing at last that your son is alive, 
though a prisoner, lifts a great burden from the heart. As long as there is life, there is hope. Four months later, Ed Dias and 11 other prisoners would pull off the near impossible. After a year in captivity, they would escape their prison camp, and they would be the only ones to ever do so. Ed would spend three months fighting a guerrilla war before being rescued and taken away from the Philippines, just as his dad suggested, by an American submarine. The hope that Frank Grimes felt in receiving that earlier telegram confirming his son was a prisoner turned out to be just a vain wisp, a temporary reprieve. The devastating news of his son's death in a Japanese prison camp arrived on July the 3rd of 1943, more than a year since the Bataan March. When the telegram was delivered, the proud father of Abilene's finest boy turned white. His son was gone at the age of 25. He would be racked with worry and woe, wondering how his son had endured those final days. Ten days after getting this most dreaded news, Frank Grimes closed his editorial writing, We believe with all our heart that to die for one's country is the noblest death of all. And just days later, Mr. and Mrs. Dias received a cablegram in Albany. It was an unbelievable one at that. It was from their son, reading, Hello folks, safe, in perfect health. Letter follows via airmail, all my love. It was a bolt out of the blue. That wonderful news was carried in newspapers across the country. His mother told a reporter, It seemed like a miracle. I wanted to shout from the housetops. And I went out and I walked and I don't even remember where. You just can't realize what it means to wait. To wait every day, every hour. And I have been waiting since 1941. Soon Ed Dyes was back in the United States. Brought first to Washington and then to a hospital in West Virginia. Newspapers and magazines competed to report his story. And it was the Chicago Tribune who won permission from the military to take down the heroic account of Ed Dias. But only days after telling his tale to the Tribune reporter, the Secretary of State, Henry Stimson, withdrew permission to publish the story, and the paper was told to not divulge a single detail of how the captives had to march, how they were killed, and how the survivors were still suffering. And you've been listening to Jay Moore telling the remarkable story of two West Texas men and their service to the country and the loss of one life and the survival of another, the reaction of those two families and the reaction of the town and the community. Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes, their stories continue here on Our American Stories. And if you have stories like these in your town, and I know you do, again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And if there's a Jay Moore in your town. We want to know him or her. Again, OurAmericanNetwork.org. More of Ed Dias's story and Rudyard Grimes here on Our American Story.
And we continue with our American stories and Ed Dias and Richard Grimes stories. The two young men were captured by the Japanese in the Philippines in part of the horrific Bataan Death March during World War II. Their two families received telegrams, one relaying that Ed Dias escaped and will be returning home, and the other declaring that Richard Grimes had died as a POW. Ed came home ready to reveal his story to the American public until the military told him otherwise. Let's return to Jay Moore. Ed Dias was given a military order. He was to not utter a word about his ordeal or the ordeal of the other captives. The fear was that the story and the brutal truth might inflame the Japanese and might even demoralize the American public. Washington had decided it was not time to reveal the horror of the Bataan Death March. Dias was anxious to return to the fight, and he was told that he could report for duty in California by November. In the meantime, he made a homecoming stop in Albany. His mother had saved up her ration points, and on the table when he arrived home was a huge Hereford steak. Ed and his wife would spend six days with his parents, and they relaxed in the comfort of his childhood home. It had been three years and a lifetime of experiences since he had last been there. All of Albany gathered at the football stadium on November the 5th of 43, and the crowd stood and they applauded at length as the young man that they all knew as Eddie took his place behind the microphone. On his old football field, he told the crowd that the lump in his throat felt as though he had swallowed a 10-gallon hat. It was widely reported that he could not talk about his experiences in the Philippines, and the crowd knew it. Instead, Ed said to the people of Albany, This is the greatest honor I will ever receive. When the folks at home are glad to see you home, well, you can't beat that. I want you to know I love every one of you. Following his Albany visit, Dice was to continue west to California. But first there was a stop he knew he needed to make, and he drove down to Abilene to see Frank Grimes. At the reporter news, he was shown upstairs to the editor's office. Two military escorts from local Camp Barkley proudly accompanied the hero of Bataan, as many papers now referred to Dias. With the guards outside the office, Frank Grimes shook the hand of Ed Dias, asked him in, and closed the door to his office behind him. What an extraordinary moment when that office door was pushed shut. Two men touched so directly and so personally by a conflict involving the entire world. Frank Grimes was 52, Ed Dias barely 27. It was a Monday morning. It was sunny outside and the temperature was in the 40s. From the north window of Grimes' office, you could see the marquee of the Queen Theater that touted a Tyrone Power movie. I feel sure that Dias commented on the mahogany desk plate that had been sent to Frank from his son two years before. It was from the Manila Polo Club. That was a place that Dias had been to many times. Twenty-six years had passed since Frank Grimes proudly reported the arrival of the finest Abilene boy. And now, he was longing to know what happened to his son. And before him, in crisp military dress, was a miracle. 
an escapee who had been there, someone who had lived the same experience, an eyewitness of things half a world away, was now seated right next to him. Frank Grimes wanted to know what happened to his boy. Had Di seen him among the other captives? Had they spoken to each other? What was it like? What did his son face and how did he handle it all? Any scrap of information, anything. And yet, the circumstances boxed them both in. Grimes knew that the young man across from him, his only conduit of information, was under strict orders to tell no one about Bataan and about Japanese treatment of prisoners. Grimes knew he shouldn't even ask. And Dias was duty-bound to say nothing of the brutal march and the gruesome treatment. That evening's editorial in the Abilene newspaper was titled, Let Them Speak. Grimes had written that the War Department should let Dias and the other escapees talk. Let the Chicago paper print his tale. He wrote that Washington bigwigs had badly bungled the job of informing the American public of what we were up against. He wrote, Do they imagine that we can't take it? Adding, It must be heartbreaking for Dias to say no to people who ask for information concerning loved ones now among the immortals of Bataan. Of course, Frank Grimes knew that firsthand. He held out hope that one day, when the ban was lifted, Dias could come back, fill in the blanks, and tell all that he knew. In an editorial written three months later, Grimes told what happened in his office that day after the door was closed. The two men decided on this. Since Dias was commanded to not talk, they agreed that Frank Grimes would. And using his imagination and from his tormenting nightmares, he would describe the last days of Batan as he had over and over envisioned them to be, as he felt it must have been for the sick and the starving prisoners, and as he imagined the difficulties faced by his own son and what it took to endure it all. Grimes later recalled, I described how those boys must have hoped in vain for relief, how they must have fought with every ounce of their waning strength, and how they gave up only when human flesh could take no more, how they had to suffer the anger-fueled indignities from the enemy and the inhuman brutality that no normal mentality could even conceive of. When he finished his pain-filled description of what he imagined had happened to his son, the two men sat in a momentary silence. And then Frank Grimes looked into the eyes of Ed Dias and softly asked, Was it something like that? The boy from Albany grimly and softly answered, Yes. Grimes wrote, I knew from the way he said it that my imagination had been inadequate. And the beauty of radio is that you can draw a picture for yourself of what that scene looked like in that office between that father and that soldier. And the soldier wanting so desperately to share with the dad the story of how his son died and the circumstances under which his son died 
The military had its objective, and it's an understandable one. The father had his, and the son, well, we wanted to know more. And the soldier, he walked that line beautifully. He both obeyed the military order and respected the father's wishes. And the idea of using his imagination, as grim as that must have been, to try and conjure up in your own mind the circumstances that led to your own son's death and the brutal circumstances. Much has been written about the brutality, the savagery of the Japanese against our men and women as prisoners of war. And it was savage treatment. The worst, perhaps, in all of World War II. Much worse than Nazi treatment of the POWs. That's how bad the Japanese treatment was. When we come back, we continue this remarkable story. Ed Dias' story, Rudyard Grimes' story, and Frank Grimes, too, and all of the families around this. Because this story affected many, many people. And there were stories like this throughout World War II. Hundreds of thousands of them. 450,000 or so died in World War II. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, this Great West Texas story, here on Our American Story. is Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes' story, two West Texas men that valiantly fought in World War II and were part of the Bataan Death March. Ed Dias would escape, Rudyard Grimes would not, dying as a prisoner. We left off with Dias meeting Grimes' father, Frank, and struggling with imagining what his son experienced during his final days. Forty days after Ed Dias left Abilene in his meeting with Frank Grimes in November of 1943, he did report for duty in California. In Los Angeles, he and his wife had rented an apartment. And on December 22nd, some friends, many of them Hollywood actors, were coming by that evening for a Christmas party. Ed needed to pick up some things, but first he had to make a quick stop by the Glendale Air Station. Before the war, it had been the airport for Glendale, adjacent to Burbank, but it was now being used as a military field, and Dias needed to take a new fighter plane up for a quick check ride. It was a twin-engine fork-tailed P-38 Lockheed Lightning. He climbed in, and a mechanic knelt on the wing to bring him up to speed about some idiosyncrasies of the plane. For one, there was a tendency for the Allison engines to backfire while accelerating, because in the States, the Air Corps used a lower octane fuel. And the mechanic warned, if you hear it backfire, you'd better hit the brakes. Dias closed the cockpit canopy. He lined up on runway 30 and pushed the throttle forward. It was 10 minutes past noon on a bright California day. Just as he reached liftoff speed and pulled the plane up, the mechanic's warning came true. The left engine began to pop. His speed was such that the only option 
was to struggle aloft. But with the gear still down and one engine out, a few hundred feet was all the altitude he could manage. The P-38's twin engines counter-rotated, so losing one meant that the plane immediately began to roll. On that December day, when that engine quit turning, I seriously doubt that Ed Dias panicked. Why would he? At age 27, he had already been in close combat. He had been in adrenaline-fueled dogfights and shot down enemy planes. He had dive-bombed Japanese ships and sent them to the bottom. He had led a squadron to ground attack and routed Japanese troops. He had been captured and mistreated, and right before his eyes he saw others murdered. He had planned and helped to lead a near-impossible escape, and he had been on the run from an enemy trying to kill him spent three months as a guerrilla fighter and escaped by submarine. He'd come home a hero and he had a party at home that night. So at just past noon on a routine Wednesday, it seems highly unlikely that losing an engine caused Ed Dias to lose his nerve. Really all he needed was a wide spot to set the plane down. And there laid out right in front of him was a broad, straight four-lane thoroughfare West Olive Avenue in Burbank. And although it was noon, wartime gas rationing played in his favor, for there were very few cars out. It was virtually empty. Losing altitude and fighting the roll, he lined up his faltering plane. But then, just up ahead, a driver turned off of North Lincoln and onto West Olive, and Ed Dias was handed a Hobson's choice. The car's driver lived on Lincoln and he had been home at lunchtime to eat with his wife, his five-year-old daughter, and his two-year-old son. That young dad was heading back to the Warner Brothers studio lot where he worked as a foreman. He drove down Lincoln, and he stopped at West Olive. The street was empty, and unaware of the drama above him, he pulled out in his dark blue 1938 Buick sedan. According to several eyewitnesses, in an instant, Dias pulled the nose up to avoid the car. With a vacant field off to his left, he banked hard that direction. He came within a foot or two of clearing the peak of St. Finbar's Catholic Church, but just clipping the top of the roof sent the plane plummeting into the front yard of a duplex, coming to a crashing, fiery stop near the front porch. It was a windy, cold, Drizzly day, three days after Christmas, when Ed Dias was laid to rest in Albany. His parents chose to have their son close to home and not at Arlington Cemetery. His funeral was held at the Matthews Presbyterian Church, which did not come anywhere close to handling the crowd. Hundreds came. Frank Grimes came. From a thick stack of telegrams, the preacher read just one, that the family had received from a young father in California, a father still able to be with his wife, young daughter, and his young son. And it read, Please accept expressed profound sympathy of the man spared from disaster by the final brave deed of your son. Greater love hath no man than to give his life to save another. Two months after his death, the War Department lifted the ban on the Dias story. The Chicago Tribune was finally able to publish 
what he had told to their reporter, and the world learned of the brutally inhumane Bataan Death March. And Frank Grimes read of a horror that he had never conceived. The story of Bataan was published in daily installments lasting for a month, picked up and carried in newspapers across the country, and even published as a book that was a bestseller. And Frank Grimes was right. Americans were not demoralized by what we learned. We were more determined than ever to defeat our enemy. As a grieving father, Grimes editorialized that the War Department should never have tried to hide the story. He then went on to tell about his meeting with Dias just weeks earlier. And now his link to any information about the final days of his finest Abilene boy had been forever lost to a selfless conviction over a near-empty street in Southern California. When the Abilene Air Force Base was renamed in 1956, suggestions were taken from the public and those names were reported in the paper. One of the first names submitted for consideration was of Captain Rudyard Kipling Grimes. The Pentagon decision makers would ultimately have to decide from a very long list of deserving young men and it was announced in September of 56 that the Air Force had chosen to honor Lieutenant Colonel William Edwin Dias, the hero of Bataan. Following the decision, in his newspaper editorial, Frank Grimes wrote that Dias was indeed a proud name, and he added that it would be a name of distinct inspiration to the Air Force and to the people of West Texas. In 1947, the United States Army posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Cross to Rudyard Grimes for the actions that he took on January the 12th of 1942, gallantly leading his men in the face of overwhelming odds. The ceremony took place in San Antonio with General Jonathan Wainwright, who himself had been a captive of Japan during the war, pinning the medal on the lapel of Frank Grimes. The paper noted that both of the men had tears in their eyes. In March of 1949, Frank Grimes returned once more to the Abilene train depot. A decade before, he stood on the same platform, shook hands with his boy, and saw him off for a long voyage to the Philippines. And now Frank awaited a return train, this one bearing the body of his son. Captain Rudyard Grimes was to be reburied in Abilene's Elmwood Cemetery, a spot less than 800 yards from the future home of an Air Force base, and a spot where today you can stand and see the Dias planes flying overhead most every day. Not long after the death of Rudyard Grimes, his poetry-loving father privately poured out his heart, and he expressed in verse what he wished he could have gone back and said aloud to his son. He wrote this, We're not the demonstrative kind. There's a sort of reserve, a cursed heritage of stern, clannish discipline. You know, a sort of holding back, an inability to be totally intimate, and to break right down and say, I love you, my son. You're the light of my life, the apple of my eye. Come, let's go playing and fishing together. He would have thought it strange, and I could not say it. Though I felt it, and he knew that I felt it, I knew that he did not wish me to say it. Look, I'll show you. 
Most people cry at funerals. They gather at trains and buses when one of the clan leaves for somewhere. And they boo-hoo and they take it without shame, the big tears rolling down their cheeks. We can't do that. Noblesse of liege. We sort of shut up inside and pinch the thing in. We take our grief alone. The Spartan boy with a wolf in his tunic. That sort of stuff. You follow me? All the things I would have liked to say to my son. I might say now that he lies dead in Bataan. And what shall I say? I love you. He knows that. I trust you. I'm proud of you. He knows that. You're flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. He knows that. Then what can I say to my son that my father could not say to me, nor his father to him, nor that one's father to him? Bon voyage. Bon voyage. Frank Grimes died in the summer of 1961 at the age of 70. He is buried next to one of Abilene's finest sons. And great job to Joey on the production. Thanks to Jay Moore. What a story. Thanks to our friend in Abilene for putting us on to storytelling like this. You know who you are. The story of Ed Dias, the story of Rudyard Grimes and Frank Grimes. A great and remarkable West Texas story here on Our American Stories.